0: So this could be a 50-minute message. Isn't that how you want every pastor to start? Well, luckily for you, we don't have that much time. But seriously, I was telling a pastor friend of mine about what we're going to be talking about this morning, and he said, oh, that's 50 minutes for sure. Uh, And you might be asking, why, Dan? Why do you feel like you have to talk for so long? Well, let me put it in perspective for you. When I was in high school, I used to love this shirt that said, there are one zero types of people in the world, people who understand binary and people who don't. Now, uh, that that is funny because in binary, one zero means two. And so it's a funny way to say there are two kinds of people in the world, those who understand the shirt and those who don't. And yes, I was that kid in high school. Uh, but it, maybe to put it in a different way, maybe you've heard this joke other ways, uh, and maybe a a better example is there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who like pineapple on pizza and those that understand that that is not okay, like Sam behind the camera who audibly gasped at the idea. Amen. But either way, there there are lots of categories like this. I watched a six-minute YouTube video in preparation for this with all the things that divide people side to side, right? There's, There's the analog versus digital watch people. There are those who take their their smartphone and have all of their apps into little categories. And there are those who just have like line upon line of infinite apps on their phone. Or there are the people who, and I know you're one of these, they're the people that clear meticulously every notification off their phone. And they're the people that have like 40,000 unread email messages. And I can pretty much guarantee you had an emotional reaction to one of these, especially the pineapple pizza one. But the truth is, we tend to fall on one side or the other in a lot of these different categories. And what we're going to talk about today is no different. You see, today we are talking about the distinction of these two types of people. Those who believe the Bible is authoritative and those who do not. In 50 minutes, I could lay out all the reasons why the Bible should be taken as authoritative. We could talk about authorship and inspiration and church history and manuscript certainty and experience, just to name a few, But the truth is, we've already talked about a lot of that in the sermons uh, leading up to this one. And I encourage you to go back and listen to those. And and if I'm honest, I could do all that. And if you are in the camp that doesn't believe the Bible's authoritative, you probably wouldn't have your mind changed by my 50-minute lecture anyway. And so rather than spend 50 minutes doing that, I instead want to give you an opportunity, whichever side you find yourself on. And that opportunity is this. Do you want to know if the Bible is authoritative? Then read it like it's authoritative and you tell me. You see, when we read the Bible, when the Bible is given an opportunity to do so, it is a primary avenue by which God challenges sin, encourages right action, and speaks to the hearts of his people. The Bible is a primary avenue by which God challenges sin, encourages right action, and speaks to the hearts of his people. Or to put it another way, the Bible is called the Word of God because God speaks through the Bible. You see, that was way less than 50 minutes. And and now we could be done because you're totally ready to engage with the Bible as authoritative. But since we have a little bit of extra time, let's dive in to the way Jesus uses the Bible. Let's see how Jesus sees the Bible as authoritative and how we can then apply that to our own lives. And the first area we see where Jesus uses the Bible authoritatively is in regards to temptation. And so if you're a note taker, I invite you to write this down, that scripture is authoritative against temptation. You know, as I consider Jesus' use of scripture, where he uses it uh, both when he quotes it, it has authority, and when he brings up ideas from scripture, there's authority behind them. But the first thing that popped up to me is, is when he's tempted by Satan in the desert. See, Jesus, right before he begins his public ministry, is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God for 40 days to fast and pray. And at the tail end of this time, we have a recorded encounter between Jesus and Satan. This is from Matthew chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do we get how incredible this response is? I don't think we do. You see, Jesus is the one whom the book of John chapter one tells us was present at the moments of creation. It says that, all the things that were made were made through Jesus. And in that that moment where creation happened, if we jump to Genesis chapter one, it says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so Jesus knows how to come up with an original response that's going to create something amazing. Just look around. He did that with a word. And yet when given the opportunity to respond here to Satan, to use a word to create bread or to say something witty that puts Satan in his place, he doesn't say something original. Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, it says, "'And he humbled you and let you hunger "'and fed you with manna, which you did not know, "'nor your fathers knew, that he might make you know "'that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Isn't that incredible that Jesus chose to quote the book of Deuteronomy in response to temptation from Satan? Three times during this encounter, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy in response to Satan's temptations, whether it was a temptation to meet his physical needs or temptation to forge his identity apart from God's plan or his temptation to take the easy way out to worship Satan and get Inherit control of the entire world in an instant. Jesus responded with scripture. And so if we want to know if the Bible is authoritative against temptation in our lives, if we want to see the same response to temptation that Jesus gets when he uses scripture, then maybe start trying it. Memorize scripture. The words of the Bible are truth. And truth has power. And moreover, the word of God has power. And God provides for our needs. God makes us who we are. And God alone is worthy of worship, whatever season of suffering we may be in. In our moments of weakness, the Bible speaks with strength. And Jesus used that strength to defeat temptation and Satan there in Matthew chapter 4. And for those of you who already believe the Bible's authoritative, who might be nodding along, there's a challenge for us as well. You see, I think a lot of times we say, yes, I believe that the Bible provides authority against temptation. But do you believe that that is true for you and for that specific sin or temptation? Or is it just true in theory for everybody else? See, true authority is true whether it's easy, whether we like it or not. And whether we feel it or not. But we need to grab onto that truth and put it to practice in our own lives. And so scripture is authoritative against temptation. And if the authority of scripture wasn't clear enough from that example, Jesus goes on to show how scripture has authority. In this second uh, example, Jesus shows that scripture is authoritative to correct religious and civic authority. Scripture is authoritative to correct religious and civic authority. You see, Jesus uses Scripture as a higher authority beyond religious or governing authorities. Uh, If we turn to Matthew chapter 15, we see this again. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made the word of God void. See, when Jesus and his disciples are called out for not washing their hands as tradition prescribes, Jesus goes straight to Scripture to defend against these attacks. By pointing out where tradition runs contrary to the clear teaching of the Bible, Jesus highlights that Scripture is greater than man-made law. Uh, Elsewhere, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus says it like this, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, Jesus shows that the heart behind the teachings of Scripture, the heart behind the laws there is to provide life for the people of God, not the specific commands themselves. Jesus' problem wasn't with hand-washing or with young, man, young men choosing to devote themselves to God. His problem was with the use of the law over and above and against the clear and teaching and purpose of Scripture. Exodus 20 says it clearly, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land your God is giving you. Jesus says, this is the first commandment with a promise. And the Pharisees were pushing this aside because of the tradition they were enforcing. And and Jesus doesn't just use the authority of scripture in regards to law or tradition. He does this for theology as well. Uh, A bit later in the book of Matthew uh, chapter 22, a group of religious leaders come to Jesus and start off with teacher, Moses told us. And, and then they go into this line of reasoning based off of some Old Testament law where uh, th- there's a law designed so that if a woman marries a man and that man dies before providing children, his brother should step in and marry her so that she can have heirs to provide uh, for her and for her household. And so the name continues in Israel. Uh, and they use this, this example of there's a woman who marries a man and he dies and his brother marries But then he dies, and then his brother marries up to seven, right? So there's seven brothers that marry this same woman. And this group of leaders, the Sadducees, say, uh, if all of them marry her as the law requires, whose wife would she be at the resurrection? And how does Jesus respond? He shows them that Scripture has authority and power. Again, this is Matthew chapter 22. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures, or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus straight up tells the Sadducees, "Um, read your Bible more and read your Bible better. He explains why they are wrong theologically, but then quotes the Bible back at them, highlighting that God is the God of life, God is the God of resurrection, and God is the God of power. And Jesus doesn't just do this with religious authorities, whether uh, tradition and law or theologically. He does this even in the face of trial before Pontius Pilate. In, in Matthew, or excuse me, in John chapter 19, we see Jesus highlighting a theme that's found in Daniel, in Jeremiah, in, in Lamentations, and then again in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in the book of Romans, and the book of James. Pilate says, Don't you realize I have the power to free you, the power to absolve you of these charges against you? And Jesus' response is to say, You would have no power over me if we're not given to you from on high. You see, when Jesus encountered civic and religious authorities, he went to the authority that is higher than them, the authority that's revealed in the word of God. And so if we are to be like Jesus, we need to go back to our roots. Our, our denomination was uh, founded on the words, where stands it written? Because what we do is based on the revealed word of God. You know, this is the reason we do uh, sermon series like Complicado, where we address immigration or uh, polarizing politics, where we talk about how to engage uh, in civic duties as a Christian. It's because the governance of how we act and live as Christians and how we engage in the laws, whether religious, theological, or civic, is found in this book. It has authority over man-made laws. And so scripture is authoritative against temptation. Scripture has authority in law and theology. And then finally, scripture is authoritative to convict of sin and inspire to righteousness. You see, Jesus has shown the authority in temptation and in the law and theological sphere, but now it moves to the personal sphere. In what many call his most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus consistently repeats the phrase, you have heard it said in reference to the Old Testament law. Uh, Here in in Matthew chapter five, we we see, uh, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, That is from the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. And then in verse 27 of chapter five in Matthew, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the 10 commandments, you shall not commit adultery. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Matthew chapter 5, quoting Deuteronomy 24, which talks about divorce. Matthew 5, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And that's in Numbers 30 and Deuteronomy 23. See, each time Jesus references this Old Testament law, it's not to abolish that law, but to intensify and clarify it. Murder includes hatred. Adultery includes lust. Divorce is not a free ticket out of a marriage, but instead something only to be considered under dire circumstances. And even your yes and no is to carry the weight of a promise. Whereas the people listening would have said, we haven't broken the Ten Commandments. We haven't murdered anyone. Jesus would say, yes, but the spirit behind those laws is just as important as the word of those laws. While those laws were given to a people in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai as a way for them to govern themselves, they were also designed to push us toward the character and spirit and person of God, to propel His people toward righteousness and the heart of God. See, Jesus is showing His listeners and us readers that when we faithfully engage in the Bible, it is the authority to convict us of sin and to inspire us to righteousness. Let me give you a a simple example from my own life. I am a lover of story. I'm a lover of entertainment. I'm a lover of joy and of happiness. And I can just get sucked into anything fiction, a movie, a book. I can go there and just fully appreciate and engage in it. And I've had a lot of people come to me and be like, Dan, you need to check out Game of Thrones. You have to watch The Boys on Amazon Prime. You need to check out the show True Blood. You would really enjoy it. And the problem for me, the way that scripture begins to convict and act there is when I read chapter five of Matthew and I read the the Sermon on the Mount, I begin to ask, what cost is it for me to watch these things? Because in these shows, women are portrayed in ways that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus. Violence is elevated in a way that is contrary to the spirit behind the Ten Commandments and contrary to the righteousness that Jesus calls me to. See, when I faithfully engage in scripture, scripture speaks into the things that I do in my daily life and pushes me towards something greater. I'm convicted in my choices in entertainment and inspired instead toward righteousness. And, you know, that's a simple example, right? That is a a fairly, you know, my entertainment choices are fairly safe. And yet, if we're honest, this is a place that we find ourselves I love my one zero binary joke, right? My two types of people. But if we're honest, there's probably a third type of people in this conversation that most of us fall into. Most of us would probably say, I believe the Bible is authoritative until we're met with something that gets in the way of something we want or makes us uncomfortable. You see, in those moments, we're really good at using excuses to get away from the authority of scripture, Maybe the, that was a contextual command or no, 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 that was for the Old Testament people of Israel or, well, that passage is misinterpreted. These are a few of the common excuses that we use that most of us have no problem when the Bible's being authoritative, telling us not to lie or cheat or steal. But when the Bible begins to push on areas like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, giving away our money to those who may not deserve it, but need it, or the countless other examples that we marginalize, it's then that we begin to use these excuses. And the best part about these excuses is that sometimes they're valid and true. Sometimes context does matter. Sometimes the commands were just for the nation of Israel. Uh, Sometimes people misinterpret and misuse passages in a way that isn't aligned with the heart and spirit of God. I mean, just go back to Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Satan quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 at Jesus in an attempt to get him to fall to temptation. Or look at the religious leaders who try to claim the words of Moses as proof that there's no resurrection from the dead. There are certainly times where scripture is contextual or misinterpreted or misused. The problem, however, is that we only use these excuses when we're uncomfortable or when we're challenged, or when we want something that it appears that the Bible may have authority to say no to. You see, we test the authority of this book in a given instance, not just on that passage, but on what has been revealed throughout it. It is not based on the authority of who wrote it, the individuals that wrote the specific books, but instead the author behind the whole thing. You see, the primary author of the Bible is the God of the universe, and he continues to speak through it. And that's why when we read it for the first time or the second time or the 20th time or the 100th time, there continues to be truth revealed to us. It continues to speak. The authority of the Bible is there because it is a primary means by which God speaks to us. If we want to practice selective hearing like children, then we're going to reap the consequences like children. But if we listen if we let the authority of these pages shape and mold us we can taste the fruit of our labor we can taste and see that the lord is good as he says in psalm 34. and before we go i think there's one more important thing for us to note and that's that scripture is authoritative in the moment of suffering you see in 2020 we need the bible to be authoritative in all the ways that we just mentioned but perhaps the authority of scripture is most needed for our moments of suffering. When Jesus was on the cross bearing the sins of the world, he didn't didn't utter something new. He didn't say something unique. But instead, his final words were from Psalm 22, verse 1. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1 reads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I know many of us are suffering in this season. I know many of us feel that God is far from us, that salvation is far from us, that the prayers that we're praying are falling on deaf ears and that nothing is going to change for the better anytime soon. Friends, brothers and sisters, the Bible has something authoritative to say to us in those moments, in the moments of our sufferings. When I have been afraid, when I'm in my lowest moments, the words of the Psalms are often my prayers. And when Jesus himself was in his most difficult moment, he prayed the prayers of Psalm 22. He utters those words, knowing not just the pain that he's in now, but also the Psalm that comes next. He knows the next Psalm promises the Lord is his shepherd, that the Lord will lead him to green pastures and quiet waters, and the Lord can restore his soul. While I cannot tell you to name and claim the promises of Scripture as a means to get you what you want, I can tell you that the promises of Scripture are true that the words of scripture have power. And when we engage with God's word, it has the authority to change our lives and meet us in our moments. Whatever moment of 2020 you find yourself in, whatever side of the authority of scripture you fall on, accept this opportunity to submit to the author of scripture. If your soul needs restoration, then I invite you to recognize that there's an authority greater than the law of this land, an authority greater than yours, an authority greater than the temptations that you face. If you will humble yourself and turn to the Lord and ask for his help for his forgiveness and for his blessing, then you'll see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I urge you to get into your Bible this afternoon and this week not to disprove or prove God, not to find justification for your actions or temptations, but to hear from the God who speaks. If we knock on the door of scripture, God is faithful to open it and meet us with the words that we need to hear. Take the opportunity to taste and see the authority of God through the Bible. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would speak through your word because you do, because you have. I know that you can and I know that you will. Give us hearts that are willing to listen. May we submit to your authority. May we be faithful in understanding it. And may we glorify you by our response to it. In Jesus' name, amen.